You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, a member of the committee staff, and I'm joined by two national security lawyers who are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or company. Hey, thanks for tuning in. Here at NSLT, we've created a safe space for national security law nerds like yourself and anyone else who wants to better understand understand national security. It's been a week filled with national security law news, and sometimes that news was not so obvious. Right. So let's start with a story that sounds like some stories that we've heard previously. The city of Baltimore's city government computer network was hacked, and ransomware was used to hold the city hostage, which means that none of the regular online services that a person might expect from their government, like even paying parking tickets, were able to be used. I think we know someone who can explain why this is a national security law issue. So, to discuss this, we brought in an expert, a former member of the committee, Angela Hinton. Angela, thanks for being on the line today. Thank you. Uh, Thanks for having me. So, why should we give a second thought to the 36-plus days that Baltimore has been held hostage to hackers? And and believe me, my heart goes out to them because this is not an easy situation. Well, in order to analyze that, look at what kinds of records are kept. Um, Unlike social media, constituents don't get to control the information required to interact with their local governments. So publicly operated utilities will require the, obviously, the service address, um, as well as the billing address and social security number of the person applying for the utility account in order to open that service account. Uh, Payments for business licenses, building permits, and other commercial activity um, these days is done online um, in order to match current commercial activity that constituents do elsewhere. And that's done with a credit card. So now we've added to that mix of data tax IDs and credit card numbers. Um, Now let's look. That is not good. That is not good. (laughs) And now think about public safety records. That includes names, addresses, national origin, date of birth, and driver's license numbers of arrestees, witnesses, and victims of crime or other public safety complaints. So I just want to foot stomp that. If I'm a victim of a crime, I could be in one of these systems that was hacked. Yes. Your data could be there. So, um, this is quite chilling, and I, you know, recall, like, Nicole brought up that we've heard stories about these databases that you actually don't have a lot of control over, like Equifax, for example. Um, we heard that Equifax, I think Equifax is nearing its settlement. Uh, this week we got news about how much they're going to have to pay, and honestly, it's, it's like a couple hundred million dollars, but it doesn't seem like an awful lot of money, considering how much money some of these companies are making off of this data. Like, what is a remedy that we have uh, to protect ourselves as consumers? How can we uh, ensure that our data is safe? And are the are the provisions that are available in the law sufficient to protect us? Well, in terms of what our remedies are, when we're talking about um, public sector held data, there's not a lot, frankly. It's mostly at the, the voting, you know, at the, at the ballot box, um, because you know governments have immunity uh, for a great deal of things. Um, so really, 
it's up to constituents to demand of their local governments that they protect this data and that they do so appropriately. Um, one of the things that I recommend is that for, uh, those in government, their incentives to move towards digitally stored data and digital uh, transactions is because of the infrastructure costs. But at the same time that they're trying to shift those costs or reduce costs, they really do need to take a more thoughtful approach to what data they're collecting. Um, is there a need to retain that data? And if so, um, how they retain that data, who gets to access it, and how they set up their systems in order to ensure that only those with an appropriate need to access electronic data can do so. And for that matter, whatever data they keep electronically or in, in analog form. So I guess, Angela, too, one of the things is people listening to this might be saying, you know, we've got an election coming up. That may not be uh, voting data, may not be held by municipalities, um, but it would certainly be held by the state. What lessons do you take from this about sort of what states need to be thinking about at this time? Um, and do is there an interplay between the data held by municipalities and the states? There is an interplay, and that's an excellent question and excellent thought about this. Um, so let me use an, a current example, a current as in within the last two weeks. Um, the city of Lawrenceville Police Department here in Georgia um, recently was the subject of a ransomware hack. What we're learning from that hack is that uh, the malicious code was planted long before it was deployed. And the... Um, What's been stated about that is that there was uh, an intent to observe what data is being accessed most frequently uh, because the object of a hack is to create delay and uh, all sorts of uh, confusion. So let's take then, for example, uh, where local law enforcement stops a driver um, or responds to a crime scene and cannot confirm that the state-issued driver's license is valid. So the local law enforcement agency is authorized to seize that driver's license. Now, if the driver lives in a state that requires voter ID, it's usually issued from the Department of Motor Vehicles. Um, the unavailability of the data, of the state data, would then delay either the return of the driver's license or reissuance of the license. If the driver says, okay, well, you know, I, I can't fight that system, let, let me at least go get valid ID, which again, in many states is issued by the Department of Motor Vehicles, um, again, that may be delayed. So the driver would then lack the requisite ID to be able to cast a vote. And that's just one example of the interplay between state data and local law enforcement being able to essentially see someone's voter ID um, and not being able to, the voter not being able to get it back. Wow, wow, Angela, you know, I'm so glad we called you. This has been awesome. Uh, we're going to try to have you back to do a podcast in a more expansive format because this is a topic that really merits an entire show. So thank you very much to Angela Hinton uh, for joining us today. Um, and we're going to move on to some of the next topics. And boy, has it been uh, very rich this week. I know that in the last two days, we have, uh, in the last two days, I should say the last few hours, um, we have heard both from the director of the FBI, and we're presently listening to former director of the FBI, Robert Mueller. 
So um, we're from the ABA. Yvette, thoughts? Sure. Um, so what I would like to uh, say, because you know we, we don't have a lot to say about the testimony, it's, it's going on as we're recording, um, and so we might be able to uh, follow up in the future uh, with some uh, commentary about the testimony. But as a public service announcement, we are the ABA. We want to encourage you to go and read the report, or if you don't have time or you can't uh, work it in into your busy busy day, uh, it's available in audiobook form for free from audible.com. I, that's the way I'm listening to it as I commute around DC. It's really important that people not listen to the spinmeisters on the left or the right, not listen to the clips that might come out of the testimony, but really, you know, dig in and understand specifically what um, Robert Mueller and his team of investigators uh, found and develop your own opinions about that. I concur. Here, here. And let me say this. If you are interested in watching his testimony from today, it is available by a wonderful public service, cspan.org. We will uh, include a link to that testimony. Um, and I will say it was factual. It largely has referred to the report. You should actually listen and form your own opinions uh, and take a look at that because that's what good lawyers do. <laughs> and we are, we are here to support and develop good lawyers. Okay, now to me, one of the biggest events in national security to this week was that there was a very quiet thing that happened, which is a former cricket player, now Prime Minister of Pakistan, uh, came to the United States and he met with President Trump. And uh, a lot of that meeting was not recorded, but there was a press conference that was given. And before they were sort of formally taking questions, there was an open mic. Um, let me just say it appeared to be a genuine love fest. There were good feelings coming back and forth, as far as I could tell. Um, but there were some important things that were mentioned, the first of which is tensions with India and Pakistan were at least referenced by the president. I did hear Imran Khan say that the biggest threat he faces is unemployment. And I think, as we all know, having a large group of unemployed males between the ages of 15 and 30 is just a breeding ground for terrorism. And so this, to me, was, like, incredibly insightful. I was absolutely uh, thrilled. I don't know if either one of you saw that press conference. But the president was also asked about something completely off topic, because I guess when you get access to the president, you ask what you want to. So he suddenly started talking about something that we're going to hit in a podcast that we'll deliver to our audiences next week, and that is the development of 5G technology. So you may have heard about that recently because Huawei, you know, the now sort of sanctioned company, was really developing this cheap. And what that was going to do was that was going to enable a lot of functioning internet access and speed in rural areas um, in smaller municipalities, and it was going to uh, allow for an expansion of all kinds of things, but that stuff is largely, the technology needed, is not manufactured in the United States. It was manufactured by Huawei in China. So our guest next week is going to talk in more detail about that, but the president, as a teaser, said that that's going to change, that there is now going to be 5G technology developed in the United States. Um, he was not pressed on the particulars of that, nor did he offer any particulars, but we're going to be watching that closely, and we'll talk in more uh, depth next week about uh, the problems that are presented when you have a lack of American technology development um, and how that threatens national security. So that's my share. And in addition to this recent uh, discussion of Huawei in the news, earlier this week, the Washington Post reported that 
Huawei was involved with um, helping the North Korean government build out its country's commercial wireless network. Documents that the Post received found that Huawei partnered with a Chinese state-owned firm, Panda International Information Technology, to help North Korea, a highly sanctioned country, build its <laughs> build its wireless products. This sounds like a national security issue. It does indeed. <laughs> okay, yeah, I'm a little freaked out. So you know, it's funny how these little facts sort of leach out. Let me add in the Post story, the the source of that information was apparently a former Huawei employee. I credit uh, the reporting. I have no reason not to. So that was interesting. Somebody said they disclosed that because it was, quote, in the public interest. I might characterize it differently. It was in the interest of national security. So, Yvette, what do you have? So my share is about the Jeffrey Epstein story. Uh, Our listeners are probably familiar with one of the biggest stories that has come along uh, this week. Um, Jeffrey Epstein was uh, given a bit of a controversial uh, plea arrangement uh, after... Uh, having been discovered uh, with young girls um, in Florida, yeah. uh, and the Secretary of Labor resigned uh, following a lot of pressure regarding the plea deal that he negotiated. Uh, Jeffrey Epstein um, was able to leave on work release. Um, there's been, been some reporting that came out in the Washington Post that he was able to have visitors, was not especially rigorously supervised when he was on work release for 10 hours a day. And so essentially he slept in a uh, county lockup for a year and was able to leave and visit a foundation that he founded um, ostensibly for the purpose of serving this, um, this work in this work release program uh, and then uh, was released and apparently continued to offend. So Yvette, how does this terrible Sex crime scandal uh, implicate national security. Exactly. So I'm not mentioning it here because of um, people's prurient interests. Um, it does have an, in, an influence. You just wanted a reason to say prurient. I, I, I you? you know, I score very high on my verbal SAT. I did want to say prurient. <laughs> no doubt. Um, but that's not the reason that I mentioned it. Um, vulnerability to sex scandals is a huge problem. You know, President Clinton... Um, almost lost his presidency over a sex scandal. We've had uh, numerous uh, instances of public officials being um, accused of of engaging in uh, illegal or um, unethical sexual relationships. It makes you vulnerable, it right? It makes you vulnerable to uh, blackmail, blackmail right? to foreign uh, efforts to influence you. Like and if you're like a not attractive guy and this strikingly beautiful woman, unlike any who's ever approached you, suddenly approaches you and you have access to a lot of secrets are you that lucky so that you sound exact did you recently have your uh your security clearance training because i remember that you're just that not that lucky specific passage um in the videos that we are forced to watch in the government and we saw that play out in real life in fact in the case of maria butina who followed that playbook almost to the letter exactly right. she is a, a very beautiful russian uh foreign agent um and she uh, seduced somebody who was in um, the inner circle of the um, of the campaign. Um, oh, and NRA, right? And, and, and the NRA, uh, and it is it's been uh, hugely significant. Um, yes. And so don't get involved in a sex scandal if you're a national security lawyer. You know there are other things that you can do to make your life more exciting. That's the highlight. There you go. There's a lesson. That's, from that's this. the thesis the for, for this particular um, part of the news. 
Okay. We have also had an active uh, week in the Straits of Hormuz. The Iranians have seized a British container ship, and this, uh, on its surface, seems like part of an effort to divide the U.S. and the U.K. on the issues of sanctions. Yes, those Iranians. Okay, well, they're at it right now, and they want to be able to eat and have jobs. And the dollar is very strong, so I'm, I'm teeing up what our next topic is going to be. We have had some wonderful guests on our podcast who talked about how strong sanctions are, how well they work. And so the Iranians want to be out from under this because they make their livelihood selling oil. Really, that's what they have right now. Um, in addition to, you know, having good doctors and other things and uh, having been part of the Middle East cognoscente. Um, so they're suffering. So, you know, they've started to retaliate and grab some things in the Straits of Hormuz. And the interesting thing is they grabbed a British ship. Um, what is interesting is Boris Johnson is coming in right now, probably even as we speak, he's prime minister. Um, he's a controversial figure at best. Um, and But interestingly enough, apparently, he has already voiced that he'll work with President Trump, but he doesn't have exactly the same view of our current administration um, in terms of abandoning sanctions. So it kind of reminds me of when we had um, Bradley Hardin to talk about foreign influence campaigns and how there is often an, an effort by foreign governments who have an interest to, to try to divide either the American public or to divide America's bonds with other countries, and in particular with Great Britain, which is what the Nazis tried to do. I think this is really challenging, um, too, because the administration has um, rejected the deal that was worked out under the Obama administration with Iran um, that the rest of the, the dealmakers, the rest of the Europeans that made that Iranian deal didn't agree with the Trump administration with respect to whether or not the Iranians were violating the deal and whether or not it was appropriate to abrogate the deal after that. So um, in, in, in a sense, we, we're already starting to see fissures in international collaboration on how to address Iran, and it's only natural for the, to expect that the Iranians are going to try and exploit those fissures and try and make them even larger chasms. Yeah. That is like... Four SAT words in one you're, sentence. It's just amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> no. I, I'm going to find a way to use the word sesquipedalian. <laughs> just wholly gratuitously. Um, all right. And so let me throw out here, um, Nicole, what, what did India just do that has us all quaking in our boots? India launched a rocket. <laughs> yeah. We're all looking at China. We're like, wow, there's a big country over there, very heavily populated. Boom. India's gone to the moon, literally. Yes, uh, and this is a particularly auspicious week because it is the 50th anniversary just last weekend of the U.S.'s first ever successful manned mission to the moon. So there's a certain level of symbolic gravitas to that as well. So my whole family went to the mall, um, and hopefully we can link uh, we can link this footage. Uh, it was amazing. We saw right? the uh, the projection of the Apollo 11 rocket onto the National Monument. And for those who are outside DC, I'm so sorry you missed this, but we will link to the local news coverage of how amazing this uh, Smithsonian um, presentation on the National Mall went. It was really incredible. It was breathtaking to see, you know, this rocket 
being projected on the entire length of the, the monument. But we digress. I okay, yes. Yeah. In addition to this being uh, both an important historical fact and a source of tremendous uh, light shows and <laughs> informative exhibits, it is also a reminder as India launches its rocket that space is a growing domain of international relations and national security and how different countries can relate in a as yet somewhat lightly regulated area. I would. I am looking forward to um, an upcoming podcast that we will schedule uh, for our next season um, on the Space Force and why we need a Space Force, what the administration's push for Space Force was all about, um, and what they're going to be trying to do. And a lot of it is addressing the fact that it, it, it really is the Wild West. Um, there are some, uh, there, there are treaties that basically say you can't like shoot things in space. But there are no treaties. Those are technical terms for yes. everyone else out there. You can't shoot at each other uh, in space. But there aren't regulations that say you can't that countries can't knock space assets out of space. And so, how are we going to manage that going forward? Um, I we look forward to diving more deeply into that topic with a space law expert. Okay, and let me say, I'm going to offer my cynical, um, paranoid view that it's not a coincidence that India launched this rocket on a day when we were meeting with the Pakistani Prime Minister. Um, I, I think that was interestingly timed. So um, I, I would hope that we will follow that. We'll find out how successful it was. It should arrive on literally the dark side of the moon in the next, what, 24 hours? Okay. So we'll keep you updated. But be, you know, if you're a young lawyer, and I've said this before, um, certainly listen to our podcasts um, that are on space law and surveillance law, but you may want to think about taking those extra classes that look sort of elective in nature, because this is a growth area. If you are interested, the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security has already published one report about defending America's place in space and has another one coming out in the next couple months about future space controls and what commercial relationships look like between different spacefaring nations and those private companies. So keep an eye on our website, AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity, for reports that really dig into the legal meat on those issues. Before we leave, let me say there was a huge bombshell news item today. We have two huge bombshell news items that we have not talked about yet. First of all, Libra, not a zodiac sign, but a new cryptocurrency that will be offered by Facebook. We're going to hyperlink the hearings uh, of Marcus, who is the CEO of Calibra, which is sort of the company over Libra. Um, interestingly enough, that company was established in Switzerland, which is known as a tax haven. Also, the site is of, of concealment of Nazi spoils. It's an interesting choice. There were claims that, you know, that, that we need to get ahead on this technology because everyone else is going to do it. Um, but it is interesting when they say we, meaning the United States, but this is going to occur in Switzerland. Let me just say we're going to hyperlink um, something to the, the Bank Secrecy Act. Basically, this makes Facebook a bank. And once you're a financial institution under the Bank Secrecy Act, that means that you have to have an anti-money laundering program um, and you have to file certain reports and there are things you have to do. I don't see that happening with this kind of virtual currency. You should look at this testimony for yourself. It'll be a learning experience. So You said there were two news items. What was your second news item? Oh, my goodness. Good God, FaceApp. Thank you. <laughs> FaceApp. Did you know people are out there playing with this toy? It does facial recognition. Where is your data going? What is it going to be used for? Folks, you know what? Some 
fast thrill, just sit down, think it over, look at the permissions. This is an interesting thing. We're going to hyperlink some further stories. Before, if you're a national security lawyer and you're letting everybody scan your face, and just put the brakes on, like slow down, think it over. And think about what the law is going to be in this space in the future, because that's where the jobs are going to be. Thank you very much. There have been, uh, and just on top of that, the Face app, um, the deep fake issue is alive and well and can really pose uh, a national security threat. Um, There was an item in the Washington Post a couple of weeks ago that we can link to as well um, regarding deep fakes. Uh, putting people in compromising positions, and and also the slow fakes, which is just manipulating exi- like real footage to slow things so, down. So it looks like somebody's drunk exactly. or mentally impaired. So there was an issue with this a couple of months ago with Nancy Pelosi, but people are saying that um, as the technology progresses, that the um, that the fakes are going to be more difficult to spot, uh, both the deep fakes and the, I think it's the slow fakes. Um, These slow fakes, you can't figure out what it is. Exactly. So it's it probably done. inadvisable to be uh, uploading lots of photos of your face to apps of dubious origin. Exactly. But I would say that for, for public figures like, you know, actors, actresses, and politicians, which is where it gets into the national security space, this can actually be... Uh, threatening. There was an article a couple of days ago about how companies are not equipped to handle this, that there have already been two major companies whose names have not been released to the press who were successfully spoofed, right? There were people who were able to take sophisticated recordings of the CEOs and give instructions to the chief financial officers to release company assets. Sure. And then and wow. there's been an uptick anyway in um, business email compromise. And Finson's just posted yet another advisory on this. Okay, we got a wrap today. Thank you very much for listening. We're thrilled that you tuned in. Join us again next week. We're going to talk a little bit about American technology development. Um, our guest is with... Is Jeff Ferry with the American Coalition for Prosperity, which is a bipartisan group. We'll look forward to seeing you then. Yes, and you can find links to the Black Letter Law and articles that we referenced on, to, on these topics at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity and in the notes to this podcast. You can also always drop us a note at NationalSecurity at AmericanBar.org, on Twitter at ABA NatSec, and you can subscribe on your favorite podcast app of choice. In fact, if you have a question that we did not cover in the, in the, um, in the news roundup, we'd love to hear from you, please uh, message us on Twitter or on Facebook. Thanks so much. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy. Mm-hmm.